Welcome to the Lisa Burke Show with Auntie Pizza. I can't hear myself. Hello everyone and as you just heard from my adorable two nephews Charlie and Harry it is time for the Lisa Burke Show and this week both of my guests have come from London Katerina Romarchikova and Dr Tony Burke Katerina will talk to us about circular fashion and Tony will discuss aesthetic medicine By the name you may have guessed Tony is my sister and I thought since she's visiting me she should also do a little bit of work while she's here <laughs> It's so lovely to have you both with me today Thank you for coming over we're from London. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> now, I'm going to start with you, Katerina. And just to give our listeners an introduction to who you are, Katerina is a fashion industry and education consultant in sustainability, innovation, circular design and responsible business. She is also a fashion designer, lecturer, founder and director of Align London. Katerina graduated from Central St. Martins and worked with luxury fashion houses such as Alexander McQueen and Gucci before setting up her own eponymous label in Paris. And alongside this, she was also a professor of draping at Parsons Paris, which is a school of art and design, and went on to coordinate their fashion department. Katerina has worked at UAL, University of the Arts London, since 2013 as subject leader in fashion arts at the London College of Fashion, instigating cross-disciplinary projects between fashion, science and technology and later created and led their first cross-school MA collaborative unit, combining industry partners and MA students from all postgraduate courses. And recently, Katerina was the head coach for the Circular by Design Awards here in Luxembourg. What has been really enjoyable the last 10 years after really questioning fashion and having experience in fashion. How can I actually really make a difference and improve? I would say the last 10, 12 years I've been yeah, working between the academic world, education, higher education, but also industry and work on a lot of EU-led and funded projects around innovation and sustainability and supporting collaboration across the fashion supply chain, which is not easy, but I like the challenge. Yeah, and I want to start with that. I mean, first of all, we are hearing this word all the time across all industries, circular this, circular that, circular economy, circular fashion. So I think most people can understand across many industries, a very linear from source to product. But now things are changing, the economy is changing and the fashion industry is also trying to change, is being pushed to change, in fact. So tell us what circular fashion means now and should mean as we move forward. Okay, uh, we'll try. It's, <laughs> it's rather a complex sort of idea in practice. Yes, as you said, so we are still running a majority of fashion industry and any other industry really on a linear model. So as you said, we take limited natural resources from this planet. We make a lot of stuff. And as a default, we make around in fashion about 30% of stuff we don't even need or sell, which is just shocking. So extremely wasteful. Can I just pause on that? 30% of fashion of items? Textiles and garments, yeah. So they are not used or even sold. And so what happens to them? Landfill, burnt, yeah. This is so bad. And it's it's sort of like, really? This is how smart we are, you know? So this is a business model we developed because it's about mass production. So you need bulk in order to drive the price down and therefore it becomes cheaper to throw things away. Well, that's one part of fashion. And I know I'm stopping you within your explanation of the circular fashion industry. But just to pause on that point... Yes, there is the mass production, but there's also the more elite and the fashion houses you worked for, for instance, Gucci, for example, you know, they wouldn't mass produce things, I imagine. Well, that's a really good question. Um, we need to define what luxury really is these days. It was definitely something different in 50s and 60s. You know, there are obviously some brands who are still doing those beautiful handcrafted pieces that are limited and made by um, experts and craftsmen. But let's be honest, majority of luxury labels are mass produced because it's about quantitism having this global domination. So this is such a sort of con in some ways, you know, where uh, consumers pay a lot of money for handbags, let's say, that cost, you know, thousands of pounds or euros. And they are produced in the same factories as fast fashion many times. Uh, I've seen it with my own eyes. And, you know, it's just a markup. Basically, we're paying money to them. And this is how 
luxury brands make money, most of them. There's a small percentage, of course, some beautiful items, but it's very small. So it's really important to think about it, what we're buying into, even if we think it's luxury. And I did interrupt you because of the 30% and then the idea of what mass production means. But going back to the first question about circular fashion, what that will mean as we move forward. Okay, so the ideal scenario is to completely get rid of waste. We have creating this loop where we're reusing resources and they go back into systems. It's not a simple circle, especially not in fashion, because what many people forget, even in people in an industry, in fashion industry, that fashion is connected to everything on this planet, from farm and farmers, you know, to chemical industry, oil, of course, um, transport, um, everything. Well, you say, of course, but actually, I don't think a lot of us, I'm looking at what I'm wearing today. I think this is cotton. I think this is some version of wool. I'm not entirely sure. I'll have to look at the label. But I don't think a lot of us understand that we do use, for instance, uh, oil in uh, <laughs> oil products to make some of the synthetic fibres. Just to give you an idea, about 68% of all the textiles that we create globally is made from oil. Let's Crude just repeat oil. that because that's... 68% of all textiles are made from oil. And this is the problem because plastics... So crude oil, it's turned into plastics, then it's then spun into yarn. And we build this amazingly convenient system that it's on, based on plastics and, and synthetic materials that we love. And materials are beautiful and convenient these days, and they can basically mimic any other natural fibers. They got more sophisticated, and we love elastan, we love Spanx, we love that loungewear and sportswear and athleisure wear. We can't live without it. The problem is that it's so mutated, so the nature doesn't recognize this, this new material that we create. So although it comes from natural resources, oil, it's been so changed by the chemical processes that we mutate basically the molecules. And so therefore, when it ends up in the landfill, the soil can't take it in and it takes hundreds of years to break down even thousands and some some materials. But on average, again, it's a bit of a, a difficult to say at this point because we haven't even got there yet. But in terms of textiles, it's estimated that the average synthetic textile, it takes about 400 years. That's extraordinary. Yeah. And then, of course, the invisible problem of microfibers that uh, shed every time we wash clothes. Um, on average, a full lot of washing machine of synthetic fabrics or garments, which we all have in our wardrobes, if we like it or not, your yoga pants and um, swimwear and bras and many, many, many materials, they shed about 700,000 microfibers per wash. This all goes into the water streams and we are drowning in microfibers, but we just don't see it. It is estimated about 83% of all water on this planet contains microfibers. And scientists last year confirmed that human bodies and all the fish in the sea contain microfibers. Yeah, well, that has had news prominence, that part of the story. I'm not sure we even know how it affects us or the fish yet. Yeah, we don't, um, but it's clearly not good in any case because it doesn't give us anything, any nutrition. And this is part of the, the big problem, the big picture that we are mutating the planet and, and the materials, basically. So long-term projection is not looking good. That's why the circularity is so needed. So let's think about that then. We are using so much of the natural resources, which are finite. The crude oil, for instance, is finite, as we all know, to make mass-produced materials. Is it changing? Are the fabrics changing? Do you see a move towards things like cotton or wool or fabrics that are recognised by the earth and can be decomposed much more quickly? Oh, this is a very complex question again, but I will try to explain. I hope I'm not going to bore anybody. Well, as I said, about 60% of materials now are made from synthetics. About 25% accounts for cotton. And can you imagine wool, one of the most sustainable fibers that we have on this planet, uh, counts for about 1%, 1%, is just always shocking for me to even say out loud. Now, the problem we have in the fashion industry and textile industry now that not even natural fibers as cotton are healthy. Because co conventional cotton, which is majority of cotton that we produce worldwide, is made or is farmed in fields by using pesticides to make it grow faster. And that's one round of uh, chemicals. And then there's a lot of chemicals used in making cotton fabrics. So there's all this invisible stuff that gets into the fiber that stays in the fiber until we wear it. 
It not, might not be hazardous. So we can't be wash killing this us. out. No. And therefore, when it goes back to the soil, although it's a natural fiber, it's not good for the soil. So we're killing our soil by simply having these processes in place. So that's why the need for more organic farming, more alternative fibers, natural fibers, and of course, avoiding and um, banning hazardous chemicals. But yeah, it is a complex system. And then, of course, soil is very precious. We have limited space on this planet. And we need to navigate around uh, how much we should use for actually growing food and crops versus uh, cotton, cheap cotton that it's feeding the fast fashion industry. Oh my goodness, this is a terribly pessimistic picture <laughs> painting here for us. So well, when, that's reality, but maybe yeah. I'll tell you some positive things. Well, um, I would like to know then, should we buy organic cotton produce? Uh, that's also a little bit complicated because simply said, organic cotton is not answer for everything. It's not going to save us, even though if everything was made in organic cotton. Organic cotton, yes, doesn't use um, heavy duty pesticides, but it does use more water than conventional cotton. Um, so it's not necessarily healthier uh, on, on many different levels. And this is where it gets quite complicated because we use so many different fibers and raw materials. We can't really simply say, oh, this is the most sustainable fabric or this one. It makes sense. I always think when we discuss this fabric choices with brands or designers that it really depends on the product, where it is produced, how much of it is produced and make the best fit, the best decision. One of my favorite combination is 50% organic cotton, 50% recycled cotton. So we kind of adding, you know, the balance in and navigating how to use what we have plus using better materials in general. And there are here, I work with a lot of scientists and a lot of innovation companies. So there's exciting stuff. It's just taking long maybe too long for us. We need to turn around this planet by 2030. Globally, we need to re reduce 50% of carbon emissions and fashion industry is major participant in this problem. It's a question of really working together. And as consumers, we have a huge power to participate in this change. So we can make a change as a consumer because of course. we feel or I feel what power do I have I was actually going to ask you that what can we do as individuals not involved in the fashion industry what power do we have apart from going to secondhand shops and in fact my dear sister has a beautiful dress on her which we bought <laughs> in one of the pop-up shops in Luxembourg just uh, yesterday I think it was yeah. beautiful just coming back to circularity and circular fashion what it really means in the first place it's to buy less and uh, look after our clothes. Care, repair and maintenance. That's really the first rule. So we can all do that better. Read the instructions not to wash clothes too often. Looking after our clothes, making decisions when to buy clothes and how and where, I suppose. All of us wear clothes. We all buy clothes if we like it or not, even if you don't want to admit it. You are part of fashion. We do have a power because we vote with our wallets. Every time we buy something, we make a choice where we put our money. So by simply really thinking about it, who is the brand I want to invest in and who I believe are doing a better job to produce better quality garments if we have to buy. But it's quite hard for us to find out that information because a lot of the time it's hidden from us as consumers. We only see the last patch of marketing to us as consumers, which is hiding the truth quite a lot of the time. Also, who's going to invest in all this marketing towards the public to reuse their own clothes because it's of no value to other businesses? That's know? a very good point. And this is obviously part of the circular models that we need to adapt and put into the system. We're finally seeing it changing because exactly the mentality is like, well, how do we make money in fashion, right? So to sell, sell more stuff. But that's not the answer, as we know, because we will be drowning in clothes. I mean, just to give you an idea, on average, there is 120 billion pieces of garments made every year. Oh, my goodness. There's only 7 billion people on this planet. Like, we can't go any higher. Where do we go with this number? So what we started to see finally that rental and resale it's turning into business models and even big fashion companies are seeing the value i was talking to a colleague of mine from renewsell which is a company swedish company that actually are buying off post-consumer clothes because that becomes commodity for them that they're turning it into new material new cellulose which is feeding into fiber companies so there are some really exciting things happening but it just takes 
a lot of effort at the beginning to connect the dots and get the recycling going. Because just to come back to your first question, really, so we have this linear system that it's still happening across fashion industry. We have been seeing recycling models, recycling systems, but that's not enough. It's one of the myths around sustainable fibers and fabrics. It's recycled polyester. No, that's not the answer. They should, shouldn't be recycled from plastic bottles. That should stay in the systems of plastic bottles. We shouldn't be making them into clothes. It doesn't serve anything and actually creates more microfibers. So we really need to get into the circular systems. So this is where we're really looking at how do we reuse waste and post-consumer materials into new fibers, high quality fibers. And there are some amazing things happening. So watch the space. In your role as an educator, and you've been in London as a, an educator at one of the best fashion schools in the world since 2013, you must have seen a lot of change in what the students are even coming to you with in their ideas. And you will be at the forefront of changing the mindsets of these young people coming into the fashion world. So what have you observed in that time? Yes, very interesting times. The last 10 years has been definitely changing and there's been paradigm shift in the way we need to think about education. It's taking a long time and it's a little too slow, perhaps. Um, but somehow even the pandemic sort of helped us to um, pivot and to really rethink that, okay, we really have to think about what are the skills that we need to give to the graduates and uh, creatives. So just to kind of put it in a context, there's been this quite terrible way of educating designers uh, in a past where you're the supreme person, the creative, you know, the kind of God in the studio. You can do anything and you just have to be creative and come up with new crazy ideas. And you can just, you know, create the most amazing fabrics, not, not even thinking about where do they come from or what is the treatment. So that's been the kind of mentality, if I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I've seen it, you know. Um, the diva. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The diva kind of um, idea of a designer. And, you know, this is the thing, like fashion is exciting. It should be exciting. And But um, there is definitely oxymoron here because sustainable fashion as a term as well, it's such an oxymoron because fashion is about newness, about constantly new things. And sustainable means long-term uh, keeping something um, going for a long time. So it kind of clashes, right? So we need to rethink how do we use creativity and designers in uh, fashion industry going forward? We have all these challenges, um, but I always see it at such an exciting time because what we have to remind ourselves in fashion education and beyond, it's that um, designing is actually problem solving. So uh, working with limitations um, and crisis, that should, we should be thriving on that, actually. So um, and also creativity means questioning things and being curious. So we are trying to reinstall um, the, the education around where materials come from, of course. I mean, that should be given. This is how I got educated um, back in my home country, you know, that we absolutely knew where everything comes from. We understood the processes. And um, I think that just gives you such an awareness, you know, what I'm doing and why am I doing and why am I using this fiber? So it starts with that and we need to have the responsibility as designers and, and brands, what we bring to the table going forward. No more this kind of like, oh, I didn't know, you know, um, oh, I didn't know viscose comes from trees. Um, you know, and that's our job in the first place. It shouldn't be all on the consumers. But do you think in the world of fashion that you've lived in all of your career, in fact, um, the designers are aware of where the the source material comes from? Or are there many designers who don't know? Literally not even the ones in the industry. We're talking big brands. It, it, they are still learning. It's it's shocking. It is really shocking. Even some of the companies who are producing different types of fibers, they wouldn't know what's happening elsewhere. So this is part of the problem um, that the fashion industry system or the, let's say, the textile and manufacturing industry is so outdated and so old-fashioned. So this is just to really come come back to your question that um, we need to uh, create these new exciting ideas about creativity and design um, in fashion and, and empower designers to not to design their own brands and always start up new businesses and create more clothes, but how to come into industry and create new systems and models and find exciting ways how to reuse materials, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Lisa Burke Show. So it's just thinking about it differently, basically. You know, we need to design for disassembly in the first place. How do we use... What do you this? mean by disassembly? 
So that's part of the circularity. So uh, it has to happen at the very beginning when designers are designing clothes uh, to think about what has to happen to them afterwards when we use them. So um, one of the problems of recycling is that um, clothes are mixed uh, with uh, different blends of uh, fibres, most of them are natural uh, with the synthetics. We can't really separate them, therefore we can't recycle them. Um, there are lots of obviously trimmings and, and hardware and things like that. Uh, we need to do better when we're designing so these clothes can be broken down, taken apart and we can recycle them. So that's definitely part of the, the job of the designer to, uh, to be creative, to design exciting clothes. Fashion and clothing should be still exciting and, of course, desirable. Nobody. So one of those kind of famous um, statements that we always say in sustainable fashion that, you know, um, if it's not desirable, nobody's going to buy the garment, even if it's most sustainable. You know, it's still and that shouldn't go away. You know, uh, we shouldn't compromise on that. But the exciting part um, should be to find the right materials to really rethink um, what we need, how we design things uh, the systems, you know, how can we encourage um, users and consumers to be part of the change? And, you know, what we need and what brands need, it's it's that trust, transparency and, and loyalty. So if they take us on the journey, um, you want to be part of it and you want to do better. I mean, I think we are all more aware about what's happening on this planet. And I think majority of people want to do good. You know, every time I talk to somebody who'd never heard of, you know, these issues, they they feel like, okay, now I know something. So number one, you just look at the composition of the fibers of the garments you're buying into. And that's uh, information that has to be there. So you can start there, you know. And of course, it's tricky because we have a lot of greenwashing happening and the marketing uh, that got really difficult to um, kind of navigate. Uh, but uh, it's getting more clear who is doing things um long term and uh, more persistently versus, you know, those who just claiming something. And again, it's about quality and investing into beautiful things uh, where you know the story and uh, with technology, we can really trace back um, product all the way to the fibers and farmers even, you know, I think it's up to us to make a little bit of effort. Um, it's, it's like food as well. You want to eat well, so you're going to read the label, what is happening, you know, with the product, uh, if it's been treated well or if there are any dodgy chemicals or, you know. So that same thing should apply to fashion in some ways, because what we forget that skin is the largest organ on our body and we are covering it with materials that are full of toxic chemicals many times, or at least chemicals in some ways. At the same time, I'm sure... <laughs> The doctor here will uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I'm not a scientist per se, but I work with a lot of them and and I'm very interested in this. And, uh, you know, every time I say chemicals um, or even fashion industry context, doesn't mean they are all bad. Of course, we are made out of chemicals, but uh, there's a lot of invisible treatments that go into textiles and uh, garments and we don't know about uh, and we need to take more care I suppose and to be part of the change to be a conscious consumer that's it well actually as you're saying all of that it makes me reflect back on uh, stories that I've heard very recently even about the construction industry and for buildings along with fashion and food I think in the next few years we'll probably get something like a, a passport where you can even have on the blockchain where certain parts came from and of course with all of this environmental sustainable talk we haven't even touched on the social aspect of fashion and where our fashion comes from, how people who create this fashion in certain countries might be treated. And we haven't also touched on the supply chains, which can be quite long across countries. So I don't know if you have a word on that. Uh, yes. Uh, so very briefly, I'll try to summarise it. Um, I think, um, to put it simply, um, the, the fashion industry, as we know it now, it's, it is based on exploitation. If we like it or not, um, we have to say it as it is. Um, it started with the rise of fast fashion back in 90s and 80s, where companies would look for basically cheaper options, cheaper labor, cheaper materials to make more profit. Uh, and it became a norm, sadly. Um, and um, it's kind of come to the surface over the last few years with a lot of tragedies. We've seen the very famous Planarasa disaster back in 2014, where over 1,250 workers died because two uh, factories collapsed. And it's just horrific, horrific. Unfortunately, that's not the only one. But it 
at least uh, shed a light, international light on this problem where, you know, the um, researchers and, and people looking into it, um, you know, found labels in the rebels to identify who are these brands who are working with these factories that were illegally built and, you know, not paid um, their workers enough. And sadly, this is a common problem or a large scale pro problem where basically majority of the people working in manufacturing um, globally are women. And they get affected most. And um, during the pandemic as well, that was just such a huge issue and, and a huge actually social media call because as immediately when everything stopped, um, the workers didn't get paid and it, it, it affected them in terms of their existence, you know, from one day to another. They don't get paid much anyways. And plus the pandemic and lockdown that hit them in all these different countries. So that was a huge, uh, amazing campaign. Uh, this is where social media is amazing and can create this pressure on, on big uh, labels and, and brands uh, in fashion, at least. Um, and they had to pay up eventually because they would have literally blood on their hands. Sorry to get too dark, but I mean, I think we need to really think about it because we see, you know, The problem is like we got so used to these low prices that, and pe when people say, oh, this is expensive, but actually many times that's the real price of, of something, of a garment. We need to think about that the, the cheap price, somebody else is paying price for that and it's mostly the people and the environment around, you know, using toxic chemicals or pesticides to grow uh, cotton faster than, than actually natural cycle allows. It's insane if we think about it. How fast do we want to go to where, you know? At the moment, we are treating the fashion industry and the resources uh, if we had 1.2 planets and, well, sorry, 1.5. And by 2050, it's predicted to, we need three planets in terms of resources just for fashion. It's insane, you know, and this kind of infinitive model that keep growing and making more, making more money. It's affecting people across the globe. Um, only a very small percentage of people in the fashion industry get paid good money. You know, most of it, it's the workers and the people in the supply chain. But as you mentioned, uh, blockchain and technology such as um, traceability, um, uh, passports or sort of um, chips or all sorts of different things that are on the market and are being um, tested and piloted. Um, are able to provide some answers, which is great to see some traceability and transparency. But yeah, the social aspect is uh, really heavy and that shouldn't happen. You know, we would like to get paid well and why should others suffer for us to buy something cheaper? It's like for fast fashion, it's estimated it's like 0.03% of the price of the product goes to the labor, to the worker. Just because they don't have rules or legislation or protection, we can just go and use it, you know, to make cheap clothes in massive quantities. And, you know, this idea of we really devalued fashion um, in terms of um, what it costs and um, how it should be made in some ways. As a designer, I find it really difficult to fight with this concept of fashion by fast fashion, because I don't call it fashion. It's a copy paste, you know, simplified pieces just joined together. There's no thought, there's no love, there's no creativity. And it's affected a lot of, especially, you know, independent designers, those who are doing it well and, and beautifully. So we need to re-educate all of us what design means and why things should cost a certain amount. And again, transparency really helps to break it down that, you know, beautiful material, high quality material is not cheap, whatever that means, you know. It's definitely not, you know, two pounds uh, for a t-shirt, you know, that's not a real price. But of course, the, the, the difficulty is that then you have some uh, luxury brands uh, sell the same t-shirt for 700 pounds. Katerina, so much to think about there. Uh, we're going to move to a different part of fashion now. And uh, Tony, I know you as my sister, but uh, just to give you a little introduction to my sister and her work, Dr. Tony completed her medical training at University College London Medical School and entered a surgical rotation under the London Deanery before finally specialising in medicinal aesthetics in 2008. She's a full member of the British College of Aesthetic Medicine, registered with the General Medical Council and forms part of the CMAC Specialist Advisory Board, a collaboration regarding the management of complications in medical aesthetics. For almost a decade, Dr Burke has worked as a Harley Street practitioner whilst also becoming a lead trainer supporting the standards of educational growth for aesthetic medical professionals. More recently, she's opened Fitzrovia Clinic in central London, focusing on personalised 
service and results driven treatments. Outside of clinic, Dr. Burke has a passion for anatomical imagery, improving the quality of medical visuals within this specialised field. Her illustrations and 3D animations can be found online, published in medical journals, and most recently a book focusing on injection anatomy widely used in the aesthetic community. Well, hello, dear sister. You've given me quite the mouthful there with a a lot of (laughs) tongue-twisting words. (laughs) How are you? I'm good, thank you. After our very little sleep last night? Yeah. So all four of us slept in the same bed. My two boys, my sister and I. Yeah, being kicked and punched through. (laughs) (laughs) So we've had a couple of coffees each. Yeah. (laughs) Now, we're going to get serious here. Tell us what aesthetic medicine means. So I think the the actual title is quite good, Aesthetic Medicine. So medicine being, it's a medical division and aesthetics mean is to do with our appearance. And so generally it's to do with enhancing our appearance. It can also be altering our appearance or to some extent it can just be sort of maintaining how we appear at that moment in time. I think there's uh, some hesitation when it comes to aesthetic medicine and some people may not take it quite so seriously. But I myself and, and you know most practitioners, particularly doctors in the UK, would feel that it should be a specific medical speciality and taken a bit more seriously now as there's been such an exponential growth, particularly in the last 10 years. And legislated perhaps more carefully. Currently in the UK, there's very, very poor regulation when it comes to um, aesthetics. Um, I was trying to look into a comparison between Luxembourg and the UK. So in the UK, as it stands, virtually anybody can inject. So most of you will be familiar with Botox and fillers because that forms probably, I'd say about 80% of our work or 70 to 80% of our work. And anybody can inject you don't need a qualification to inject Botox or fillers in the UK. Literally anyone? Anyone can inject. Wow, that's quite scary. Yeah, so <laughs> it is scary. Yeah, it anyone, is scary. Anyone can inject. There's a slight difference between Botox and fillers in the sense that Botox is a prescription medication. So in order to obtain it, you need to write a prescription for a patient. When it comes to fillers, it's uh, non-prescriptive. Hopefully that will change, but it's non-prescriptive. So anyone who can buy a filler, which actually can also be bought online to some extent. I probably shouldn't be saying that because people can be (laughs) influenced. Yeah, and then they can inject. So talk about the bad um, side effects and the, the bad stories with that so that people don't do it themselves well, and ever, you know, go of, that Of way. course, it's, and, and, and you know, really many practitioners do, but then it becomes scaremongering. It's, 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 very, it's, very, it's very difficult. So with regards to training in the UK, there would be private companies that will train medical practitioners, but there will also be uh, companies that will train, say, non-medical practitioners. And myself as a doctor and also, for example, dentists and pharmacists, we're all responsible to bodies. So as Lisa mentioned, I'm under the GMC. So should I have a complication? Should I do something wrong? That patient or anybody else can report me to the GMC. I but you're effectively saying that somebody who isn't registered can't be reported yes, to anybody. Yes, there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's no... So in fact, it's a greater risk to you or a dentist. There's no regular... There's far more greater risk to me. Yeah. Far greater risk. Well, let's me. talk about some of the treatments then. You, you've mentioned two that I think most of the audience will be familiar with, but it's a, a rapidly changing world. And aesthetic medicine isn't just about looking better. It's also about maintaining what we have or trying to do better by our bodies. Mm, exactly. Um, you said it's rapidly changing. So I, I started in 2008 and I'd actually had a brief training day in 2004 and I, I did some more training then again in 2007 towards 2008. And at that time, it was mainly, it was very, very basic injectables. So if you think back to what you may have seen in, in that decade, it would have been very Botox faces, very shiny foreheads. Um, the fillers were predominantly used for lips and smile lines. And then there was this uh, drastic change in the last 10 years, wonderful improvements um, pushed by both the tools that we use, pushed by better knowledge about the procedures that we do. Um, and I would say a lot to do with social media because it's easier for us to to market and to educate, mm-hmm. as well as patients themselves being able to view this and also themselves to be talking about it. So it became more easy to talk about, I think. But there's all sorts of laser treatments available. So and, with regards, yes. Many, many other treatments. So talk us through the other treatments. Okay. And what, what 
they do and why people should even consider it. Because a lot of people will think this is an awful idea. Why would you inject something into your face? So when you think of aesthetic medicine, yes, you do think of sort of Botox and fillers, um, but it, it covers a whole scope of treatments. And so you'd go from, say, the least invasive, which would be just thinking about skin care. But also, as I mentioned, there are a lot of some machine-based treatments. And so radiofrequency, which has been around for quite a long time, but that's had a, a bit of a resurgence in the last few years, um, thanks to Andy Murray's mother. Oh. <laughs> oh. So recently, um, one of the trending treatments would be sort of fractional radiofrequency. Um, that's a, that is minimally invasive, so it does have small needles and there's targeted radiofrequency to a particular depth that helps to either tighten our skin or subcutaneous layer, so just underneath the skin. Um, so a lot of patients are opting towards those sort of treatments as opposed to injecting substances into their face. Is it called mesotherapy? No, or no, is no. It something similar? No. Um, no. So mesotherapy, um, we still use mesotherapy has been around for quite a long time. I, know, um, I, I heard about it because my friend who had um, quite a large extensive burns on her body, mm. she became um, a model for testing this therapy and it was very used for her skin to kind of smooth it out. And now I know that I've seen it as an as a aesthetic treatment later so I'm just curious Okay, um, it's difficult to comment on because there's so many different treatments that can treat particular issues that I would But that's a very important point because, in fact we talk about aesthetic medicine and we think oh gosh, people are doing this, that and the other to their faces to, to look whatever way they want to look like but in fact there is a genuine medical side which is to help people who've suffered from something as well not just suffered it can be it can be um, something that has uh, mentally affected you with your appearance since you were quite young so we look at proportions of the face and when people say for example why are you treating a young person at the age of say 20 or 22 and you can see that structurally if something was improved slightly that it would it would greatly improve the proportions of their face and and it can affect a person's confidence so it's not trying it's not a necessarily a be- it's not necessarily a beautification it's not a trending beautif- beautification treatment it's just trying to for example people patients who've got a recessed chin you can improve how it's projected, can improve the proportions of a patient's face and that can you know, greatly improve how they smile, their profiles and because photos these days are so important, you know, young people are so conscious of how they appear as I would say every age group these days. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And on that point, also the other side of that is people who might come to a practitioner who are suffering mentally with self-esteem issues or other mental issues, any sort of issue. But you have to be very careful as a practitioner to think, you know, you can't keep doing various treatments. That's not going to improve the internal issues. Yeah, and it, it's very difficult to, as practitioners. And I, I remember talking about this on Instagram to some other practitioners because it can be very hard for us to identify these patients with um, BDD, so sort of body dysmorphia. So often when you first meet a patient and do a consultation, you may see the issue that they're talking about. And it may be they're saying, well, they tried to have it treated, it didn't seem to work. And so they're going to a new practitioner to see if something can be fixed. But it's only then once you've treated a patient and realise, ah, they're not quite happy with that or they want to, they can see they can still see the same flaw or another flaw and this has happened to me twice I think now um, and it's very very sadly it was only retrospectively did I realise so identification of those patients could be improved upon um, we have these questionnaires we can give to patients but I you know people are clever enough to get around them yeah, you know, it's it's, it's so it's, it, it is difficult. Um, I think better co- um, collaboration with societies dealing with body dysmorphia would help us. And also, is it on the rise? And I do believe it is. So it's it's something that we need to be increasingly aware of, and patients coming through our doors. And going back to the treatments, apart from Andy Murray's. Oh, yes. Mother's favourite okay. treatment. So let's talk about the mesotherapy. So you spoke about that as well. So again, minimally invasive. So mesotherapy, um, when you think of the skincare that you use and when you're applying it to your skin, you read all the ingredients. Well, one of the main problems we have is that it doesn't penetrate through our skin. So we have mesotherapy, which injects a lot of these uh, cocktails and ingredients directly into our skin. So it's, it's widely used and used alongside PRP, platelet-rich plasma. Another That's treat- called the vampire facial, yes. isn't it? So they take out your blood, they yes. centrifuge it. Yes, so that they get out the plasma and they inject it back into your skin or something like this. Platelet-rich plasma. Right, yeah. that, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, but on the point, just going back to what you were saying before about uh, mesotherapy, there are huge marketing fallacies out there as well when it comes to certain skincare products we can buy on the shelf where it says it has collagen this it's got hydrolauric acid hyaluronic hyaluronic acid (laughs) Um, because these can't get through the skin barrier can they so it's a lie in fact I think they struggle with penetration and some products are better than others, but it's not always a lie. Um, And also you have to look at the percentage of ingredients and the quality of ingredients. So um, again, it's it's very difficult with marketing. So a, a lot of the we would call it medical grade skincare would be purchased through clinics. Whereas when you go to a high street store, you'll find that the percentages of many of these active ingredients will be much, much lower. So if you're trying to, if you have a particular um, issue that you want to result from, you know, you may not see it when you go to, when you purchase something from a high street store. And it is much better if you talk to a practitioner about it. And also some of these um, skincare products are, they're prescription you know, so you're not going to be able to, particularly in the UK, be able to purchase them. Um, what, what I do love is the fact that I, I think um, the younger generation these days are much more skincare aware, um, possibly to do with social media. COVID was amazing because when we couldn't go into clinic, many, many practitioners were then um, talking online about skincare. They were sending out skincare products to their patients Um, and indeed there are some wonderful skincare brands now where you can discuss your issues to a practitioner, purchase your skincare online which is prescriptive and they will adapt that monthly for you. So uh, there is... just for a general person, Mm -hmm. what should we think about buying? My very, very basic skincare regime which I would give to virtually any patient in the morning, so you're going to cleanse your skin. I'm not too concerned which cleanser you buy. There will be some companies that will try to get you to buy, you know... What about water? Okay, so no, okay, fair enough, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> what about water and soap? No, no. Okay, no, so I buy something that's a bit gentler on my skin, okay? Water um, is gentle on your even skin. Even soap is not. Oh, depends where you live. The water can be hot uh, in some places. So, uh, w- once you've cleansed your skin, the most important thing I would probably apply then would be a vitamin C serum. Um, got that. You've got that. Acid, yes. Yes. Well done. I love my serums. Uh, I think that's oh, good. already a one. Layering of the serums is quite a thing these days. So, um, vitamin C serums. The difficulty with those is you'll see vitamin C in many um, in many products you can buy. But it's very unstable so and so it easily oxidises. So you need to keep it somewhere cool and dark. I think a fridge is quite good or in a makeup cupboard or your bathroom fridge. Mm-hmm. And when you open the bottle, of course, you're allowing the oxygen into it straight away. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Keep, keep it closed. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> no, I mean, a lot of people are not aware that the products go off. You know? Oh, yeah. But with vitamin C, you can actually see it. I mean, it changes colour. It goes from a clear serum, it goes uh, to uh, an orangey brown. So as soon as you see that change, you know it's oxidised. It's, it's and so it's not working anymore when it goes that colour. It's not working so well. Huh. Yeah. Oh, oops. Oh, and you get oh through that bottle. My bottles are yeah. that colour. Oops. Um... <laughs> Okay, so you've got your vitamin C serum and that helps to brighten our skin and it works incredibly well with our sun protection. So they they work hand in hand together and also it helps to strengthen our capillaries in our face. So then you, I typically would say get a, you know, have a decent sunscreen. Um, I always wear um, one with a factor 50. It should have broad range protection though. By which we mean the UVA, UVB. UVA, UVB, yeah, exactly. There's a... And what I try also to tell my patients, because often they will say, well, I apply my sunscreen or do I apply my moisturiser and then my sunscreen? Whereas for me, my sunscreen is my moisturiser. And there are really some phenomenal brands out there who have such a wide range of sunscreens. And probably my favourite is Heliocare, because I don't think you can say there's not a sunscreen for you within that range. It's it's phenomenal. Um, And also they come with, you know, there's tinted ranges, those for dry or oily skins. Um, and what about moisturisers with the sunscreen protection? No, I don't tend to uh, quite like... I, I think the problem with those is they, the SPF in them tends to be, um, or the, the protection tends to be much lower in them. What I do like is the fact that people will liberally apply a moisturiser, so I think that's great. But if you look at the protection, it tends to be much lower than that of a sunscreen. Okay. Same with makeup foundations. They often have a lower SPF. But Much. They, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, the evening. That was my morning regime. Oh. <laughs> Is that the morning regime finished? Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm talking about a basic... So it's vitamin know, C and sun cream. I'm talking about a very, very basic regime that people, I think, can stick to. So the evening would be a form, if possible, if you're not um, pregnant or breastfeeding, would be a vitamin A product. So a retinol, a tretinoin, something along those lines. Can we buy that over the counter? 
You can. Yes, you can buy retinols over the counter. Um, and what percentages should we be buying? Ah, oh, that's that's a very that's that's very difficult to talk about because um, different different skincare brands will have. If you see, for example, a one percent retinol of one brand, that will behave very differently to a one percent retinol in another brand. Why? I presume it's because it's one percent within what within what range of ingredients. It behaves differently. If there is a skincare range you're using, I would say stick to that. Find a percentage that works. Go from the lowest percentage and work your way Because, up. of course, people can react to retinol. Everybody yeah. reacts to retinol. So it's not just, oh, I react really badly. Everybody reacts to a retinol. So um, I expect everybody's skin to go a little bit red, um, to have a mild peeling effect. If you're overly peeling, if it's very stingy, very painful, you just need to reduce the quantity and reduce the frequency of application. I want to jump because I know we're running out of time and I want, I've got so many questions on this. It's, it's, it's a very exciting field as well and very related to fashion. And I wanted to ask about the, the trends in aesthetic medicine because you see almost fashion trends. You can see it on social media, for instance. And do you agree with this? Would you go along with it? Or do you give recommendations when clients come in? I absolutely hate trends in aesthetics. Not when it comes to, you know, oh, this treatment's new and exciting. That's I, I do get excited by new treatments. My problem is trends in appearance. Yeah, it's um, the same thing in a way It's exactly fashion. the same it's, thing it's, as fashion. Should, what suits you, uh-huh. you know, what you need uh-huh. and listening to your body and your skin. That's well, well, my people have this thing, but I think it's to do with social media and also with filters and how they can change themselves. But I felt particularly, and again, with that younger population, how they felt their faces were almost a disposable fashion. You know, you can inject something in, but it can be broken down or you can have some Botox but it wears off play around basically exactly you can change how you look month by month to an extent Um, and I would definitely say since about 2010 up until 2020 you could see this and you saw the change if you looked at social media Um, and um, if you're aware at all of aesthetics the, the trends were for a long while it was the lips you know, the Kardashian lips, uh, which seem to get bigger and bigger in the UK. Thankfully, they're all being broken down now. Um, <laughs> Not all of them. I can still see it on a lot of people. I thought you were about to say I could see it from across the <laughs> across the room no, here. It's no, not from me. Lips, no, <laughs> fish lips. Fish lips, yeah. <laughs> it, it was a UK-wide trend. Um, so the other trends, for example, were having very defined jawlines. So almost towards a 90 degree angled jawline, um, having a more narrow chin. Uh, again, more recently, actually, within the last sort of two years, it was um, fox eyes, mm-hmm. which is um, threading of the tails of the eyebrows to lift the eyebrows up. Oh, my gosh. So, oh, Lisa, you're not looking at enough Instagram. No, no, what thank you. I to see it on, you know, models and really young people. Really sad. Again, but you, you said the right thing. It is the younger generation that tends to follow these trends. So do you have a, an age limit to who you treat then? 21. But I don't get many young patients. So you have to see that, you know, how you market your clinic mm-hmm. and what your clinic puts forward will dictate the type of patients that come to you. So my, the average patient I get, I would say, would be in their 40s. And are they mostly women or? Mostly um, women. And can I ask, so if you see somebody who, uh, let's say, doesn't need what they're asking for, mm-hmm. you know, that they want fillers um, because they think that, you know, their face is not what it was or something like that. And you as a qualified person and doctor can see that, well, it's not necessary. And would you refuse treatment uh, or would you sort of try to convince them that not now, maybe in five years or whatever that is? For sure, you just say no. But the, the <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Tony yeah. can be quite strong. She looks small. But she I think is that's small. important because yeah. I think that's um, ethics, right? And uh, that plays part in it. And to educate. Um, but the people. point is, not all practitioners would say no, and I that's know, where the but, complications but come. But of in. course, as, as a medical doctor, of course, um, this should be. I, I would assume with with time. Um, it becomes easier to say no. I think one of the problems is in the first few years when you're practicing and you're trying to build up your patients, you're more, you want to get that practice in, you want to please your patients, you want to do as they ask and give them what they want. You know, the consumer is always right. But in fact, you realise um, you're helping them, you're educating them by telling them no. Mm-hmm. And usually there is something you can do to help it may just be skincare. It may yeah. just be a skin treatment. I remember seeing adverts on the on the bus stop where it says uh, "Stop aging." I, I hate that term actually. And it's it's insane I, because it, it it's is. not true. I yeah. mean, it's in, it's impossible. Yeah. We I, are I, born to age, uh, and so this idea of like we should mm, look the same for, I, the, I for the next agree 30, with you. forty years, mm-hmm. it's not possible. But but I I agree that we should do prevention, and we can 
I personally think that if we can improve something, and I think the aesthetic medicine is getting better in terms of that it's not as invasive and, and you know, tough, um, that it's more friendly maybe? In terms it, it's, it's about feeling well. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you look well for your age, and you then you tend to feel well and you tend to feel... Um, mentally well, and I think that's that's very important. Um, but absolutely, I, I hate that sort of anti-aging. But I want to come on to that actually, because there's a huge amount of scientific work being done right now across the world. I can think of Dr. Sinclair over in Harvard, for instance, uh, who wrote the book Lifespan. You're looking at me quizzically. <laughs> it's okay. Carry on <laughs> about aging. You know, so there's a lot of scientific work being done internally on our bodies as to the variety of reasons as to why we age. Aesthetic medicine seems to be doing this from the outside in and then the quite new fields of scientific work is doing it from the inside out to try to figure out what's going on on cell processes to figure out how we age. But I also want to bring this back to fashion because for so long, I mean, why is it that we're doing this? It's not just about feeling well. It's also because women in particular have had this awful weight on our shoulders. Oh, we need to look young. And still, I mean, you can turn on pretty much any news channel and look at the combination of male-female there. And I wonder how old the woman will be compared to the man sitting there. And so for a long time, all of our models have been teenagers into their 20s, but you're done by the time you're 30, something or other. But that is beginning to change also. So all of our worlds are, are coming together. So the scientific research being done inside out and people are taking, I think, greater care in the main, or a lot of people are taking greater care about what they eat, for example. You said that earlier as well. Um, What we're putting into our bodies, we're trying to look after our physical health, our mental health, and then we have the aesthetic medicine coming in from the outside. But we also need to see, we need to see women as they age. I mean, yeah, fashion and social media play a huge role and responsibility, you know, that what is happening and how women are perceived and how they feel, of course. And, you know, I've been in it. I used to model when I was much younger. That was a way out and, and sort of, you know, well, having you're opportunities. still amazingly stunning. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it definitely affected me to a certain point, you know, that I have such a high standards and, and you know, um, what I think it's beauty and, you know, what is beautiful in, in sort of my subjective way and um, I can see that the damage it can do you know the way I mean um, it still can be the case how I mean models are treated purely on their looks many times I'm not saying everybody. Or their size. And their size and you know and then the other thing is that you know I mean the whole thing problem with sizing it's so unrealistic you know just even UK the average real woman it's size 16 and you were using this um, you know solid mannequin that are, uh, you know that don't move and they're size whatever uh, 6 you know so this unrealistic way of you know every time you go to a shop and then you have this skinny tiny legs which are not even based on a real model you know and and of course, with the with the trends in terms of looks, it, it is really interesting because obviously we need to generate exciting visuals. That's that's what creativity. We is. do with age, um, and one of the problems that we face, with, for example, in clinic, is if I were to ask for consent from a patient, you know, can we use these photos? It's highly unlikely I would get consent from an older patient compared to a younger patient. So a lot of the visuals that you do see, you know, from a clinic's perspective, and we are a clinic that does have that higher age bracket, it's very difficult to get that consent. So when they want to look and see these before and afters and be able to associate themselves with it, you know, themselves with it, it's difficult to get unless you you get um, more women being confident about admitting that they're having these treatments done. Well, there, there is a trend. I can see the trend happening and I can see wonderful women uh, in different decades of their lives speaking out more and more and being visible, literally we, just We have more visible. diversity in terms of models and representation of different types of women in fashion. It's slow, yeah, I saw but it's coming, you know, literally around the from corner. plus size to different, obviously, yeah, there's a bus shelter types, etc. Around the corner from here with an H&M model plus size. And I thought, wow, that's Again, fantastic. we shouldn't even actually say plus size. It's like a, no, a normal, normal body. Size, sorry, you know, you're absolutely so right. It's, it's tricky because yeah. it's a mind feel and you know, as a designer, I understand that, you know, we want to project certain aesthetics because that's part of the universe that we create for the brand and for the for the storytelling. Um, so, I, you know, it is 
tricky because you can't be always inclusive with everything, you know. But as a global brand, somebody like H&M, they definitely should, you know, take in consideration all these different consumers and and the effect that they have, you know, on, on the trends and faces and whatever, makeups and, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely goes hand in hand. It's been feeding in, you know, uh, the, the way we want to look. I mean, I remember even just reading the stories where women used to go to plastic surgeons and going like, I want nose from, I don't know, Angelina Jolie, you know, <laughs> um, they, these kind of weird trends that, I mean, would they even suit you? It was just, and this is what we do even in fashion. I want to look like this. I want to wear this, you know, but reading that, well, that is, that is the individualism, how, you know. That's how you know, and, marketing has been run. That's how fashion yeah. has been run. Um, and within aesthetics, I, actually, it's, it's greatly influenced by what they see from their phones. So it's it's social media or reality TV, mm-hmm. definitely in the UK, which has had quite a big impact, which, again, is something I can't stand. Um, so it would be nice to have more... Popularizing, you know, the, all these treatments and plastic surgery, like a norm when they are 25. It's... Ooh, and spending all this money. Yeah. Shocking. But saying that, I just want to inject something because... Um, uh, <laughs> Great use of the word there. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Um, As much as I hate uh, reality TV shows myself, um, I hate, it's a strong word, but yeah, um, it's just uh, horrific um, to see types of people that they present and normalizing some of these things. Exactly, that's what they're doing, yeah. But um, there's one good news that I just read that the very popular Love Island, um, they are um, partnering up with um, eBay and all the contestants this year are going to wear pre-loved clothes, which means a huge difference. Because <laughs> but they, they don't are, wear many clothes at all. I know, I know. But <laughs> this is huge in terms of promoting more sustainable way of um, using clothing and not promoting the ultra fast fashion brands that they normally partner up with. So in some way, that's a little victory because it does have a, such an impact on, yeah, on you're the world. Right. Well, at least UK audience. So it's small things and even promoting more natural beauty. You know, we, we should, we again, media, these TV shows, um, they have they can do so much more, you know, mm-hmm. educating themselves, like how can we actually make a um, difference or impact, you know? For sure. Well, as, as standard, when it comes to Love Island, um, just before it, it starts, there will there'll be like a double page spread and it will have all the contestants and that will say what procedures they might have had. Oh, my God. That's what they do. And they list and then they list all the, the cost of each, each procedure. And, they, and this is why um, you get patients asking for it. These are young, young, young patients. And what you said, it was so interesting that, you know, a lot of um, older women, or whatever that means, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, or, you know, sort of uh, after, let's say, th- 30 even, you know, they don't necessarily always want to admit um, they want to do something. Uh, They're very nervous about uh, photography and not having control of their photos. And they realize that if their photo is used on social media or on a website, they have loss of control. Sure. Because even if they take their consent back, it could be taken somewhere else. But even in terms of you know improving ourselves at at certain age i mean it it should be also private that's not not that i have to admit and talk about it but uh, the extreme difference with those 20 year olds where they go i had this and this done it's like a it's it's like oh i just went to the shop and bought um you know loaf of bread if i if i have a patient who's 65 and she's never had a filler treatment for example before it will t- I will spend a long time with my consultation um, prior to, you know, separate appointments to potentially do a treatment. If you have a younger patient, they just do it. They just just do it. Yeah. yeah. And they can tell you about it. Ladies, Sorry. we could <laughs> talk forever on this and I'm going to invite you to continue talking about this. But we've reached our hour limit. So any final thoughts? What can we do to be better circular fashion consumers and also Tony a final word from you top pieces of advice or uh, a go away message for the weekend ahead I think number one rule is to be mindful of what we do and what we need having emotional connection and buying into things that we love for the right reasons and looking after things we have enjoying the process also we can empower others and I've seen this a lot even just with my students when we talk about circularity or sustainability they talk to their families and kind of it can go on you know so 
think about what we do, how we dispose of things, including obviously clothes. Well, I'm feeling very, very saintly today because I'm wearing a dress that's super old. I'm wearing shoes that I bought in London in a secondhand shop. This is beautiful. When you actually know where things come from, you remember this. Oh, I do. Because we, we yeah. have this disposable And I have of memories of when I wore this. I'm wearing secondhand clothes myself. Um, you know, menswear jacket from Savile Row for, for five pounds in a charity Very shop. nice. Lots. And me. Yes. <laughs> you're, 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 Luxembourg yeah. And we didn't even Shop. plan this. this no, so no, beautiful. no. I know. I thought we should make secondhand and pre-loved and and you know long-term garments make it cool, yeah, interesting, and, and there's no shame in it. You know this idea of like, oh, I wore it once. I mean, social influencers and people like that. They're like, oh, I already wore it. I can never wear it again. So normalizing or not even normalizing, sort of making it a fun to it's trendy. talk about these things. It is becoming like, trendy. Oh, it has fine. been. We swap sometimes yeah. uh, with my friends, designers. So make it very engaging and having stories. You know, behind these clothes. So there we go. We're already hopefully influencing some others. You did. And final word to you, Toe. Uh, so aesthetics is all about our our individuality and it's not about changing ourselves. It's just trying to be the best person that we are. So feeling well, looking well, and it shouldn't, shouldn't be as obvious as people think it can be to others. So, so the natural so look. natural look. Thank you both so much. Enjoy your weekend ahead in Luxembourg. And um, Tony, you probably should get back to your lovely little boys. My favourite nephews in the whole world. My only nephews in the whole world. <laughs> Thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Lee.